Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. This part of a series that we are kicking off today uh, called Our House. Come on, just uh, have you got your uh, life group booklet? Did you receive that? Uh, if you didn't get it, stick your hand in the air uh, because uh, you want to grab one of these uh, uh, Jen, you can uh, just keep your hand up and Jen will be able to get that to you. Um, but, you, you know, you're not allowed to read through it now, okay? You know, it's, it's gonna, there's going to be spoilers. Uh, so we're going to be just, over this series, journeying uh, through and looking at some of the key relationships that we have that sit within the home. Marriage, family, relationships, parenting, and uh, obviously grandparenting and legacy next week. You know, we, uh, we plan for the things that are important to us because uh, we want them to be great. You know, we, we, when we want to have a great holiday, we plan for it. In fact, I think that even more fun than the holiday itself is planning for a great holiday. Anybody else like that? I just love planning holidays, particularly driving holidays. You know, if we want to get our finances in order, then we go and see a financial planner and we put plans in place. If we want to buy a house, we set up plans to buy, build, uh, look out, make our house look great. If we want to get fit, we come up with a fitness plan uh, so that we can get fit. And uh, if we want uh, a family, then we make plans so that we can have a great family. And the thing is, is that great families don't arrive by accident. Great families don't arrive by accident. Great families follow a plan. And the good thing is is that God actually gives us a plan for family. We see in God's Word that He unpacks, He gives us some ways in which we can put plans in place so that we can have a great family. And so over the course of this series, and you'll see here, we're just going to encourage every person to make a plan. Make plans so that you can be in great relationship. Make plans. So uh, hold on to this and we're going to revisit this a little bit later on. One thing that we do plan for, particularly in our age and our cultures, we plan weddings. I mean, weddings have become insane. I I remember my own wedding and this was uh, almost 12 years ago. Uh, I've just got one photo up there. It was the only one that kind of spoke about planning. Uh, Yeah, all right, okay. Once we get beyond that, the reason I chose that one is because there's a laptop computer there. The the story is is that um, it was three degrees the day we got married and and everyone was freezing and so we just bundled into this hotel foyer and and they just let us take a whole bunch of photos. So that's us in a hotel foyer with the hotel laptop uh, in the background just for good measure. I mean, there was so much planning. There were Excel spreadsheets, there were budgets, there were programs and schedules, we had project managers, we had volunteers, it was just all a little bit crazy. You know, it's got so crazy these days that you act, people actually employ wedding planners to plan their wedding. They're paid to make it an amazing day. They're paid to make every bride and groom's hope and dream become a reality. You know, I sit down regularly with with our young couples, couples who are preparing to get married. And I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, we invite them over, and Meg and I, and we sit down and we help plan their day. 
Now, there's a lot of effort go, that goes into planning a wedding. But when I sit down with the couples, I ensure that they know that it's more important to plan for a great marriage than it is for a great wedding. It's more important to plan for a great married life than it is for a great day. We love to plan, but we need to plan and think about how we plan and prepare for a great marriage. And today I'm going to be preaching on the subject of marriage. And I've got to be honest, I'm a little nervous. I'm more nervous than I am no- than normally when I get up to preach. And there's a few reasons why, why, why this is so. You know, it's challenging preaching on this subject. Firstly, because I'm not an expert. You know, I haven't even been married 12 years and I look around and uh, there are many of you who have been married a lot longer than me and you need to be up here giving the message and I should be the one listening. I'm no expert and what I do know is that there are many opinions about marriage. You know, everybody has an opinion about how marriage should be. You know, marriage is seen in different ways. I think sometimes in the church we have overemphasized marriage. We've overemphasized it. We've held it up on a pedestal where it shouldn't be. And we live in a culture that underemphasizes it, or should I say overemphasizes it, but in a different way. I would say that mar- marriage in our culture is trivialized. I mean, you turn on the TV and you see the farmer wants a wife, or the bachelor, or the bachelorette, or God forbid, Married at first sight. (laughs) You know, our culture has a strange vision of marriage. And thirdly, why it's a challenge to preach on marriage is because every one of us has a different experience of marriage. Now, I'm aware in this room that, that some of you may say, you know, you've got a great marriage. Others of you may say, you know, things, you know, marriage is hard. Now, others of you have gone through a divorce or are separated. Some of you here will be widowed. I know that. And, and others, others of you here are single. And you wish that you weren't single. And so I realize that as soon as I begin to talk about marriage, there's a whole bunch of emotions that arise in this. And with all of that said, I do want to turn to the Bible and I want to turn to a person who speaks into marriage and speaks from a unique perspective. He's single. He's been single a long time. His name is Paul. And Paul speaks to the heart and to the practice and the disciplines of marriage as someone who is single and he does so because he understands the dynamics of relationships. He understands what relationship looks like. Paul has something to say about marriage because he spent time with Jesus, another person who wasn't married, who gave us an ethic about what it looks like to live in relationship. And Paul gives advice as a single person to marriage because it's found in Jesus and therefore it's for everyone whether you're married, single, or in between today. 
And he starts, and we're going to look at a passage today from Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you've got your Bibles uh, with you, open up. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. And we're going to slowly work our way through. And I'm going to start by just reading the first verse. And we're going to pause and sit in this for a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There are some key fundamental points here that I want to unpick. But basically, Paul says the foundation for any and every relationship, the foundation for healthy relationship is found in mutual submission. Paul says the foundation for healthy relationship is mutual submission. There is wisdom here as Paul starts and he says, there is wisdom for every relationship, whether it's the context of marital relationship, which he's going to dive into a little bit more, or any other relationship, this is the foundation for healthy relationship and it's submission, mutual submission to one another. And there is something about submission that brings profound honour and dignity to the other. It acknowledges the gifts and skills of the other. It defers to the other. It allows for grace. It enables forgiveness. It creates room for empathy. You see, submission sits at the heart of healthy relationship. We got that? Submission sits at the heart of healthy relationship. And why can Paul demand this? Well, he says it's out of reverence for Christ. Everything that Paul teaches, everything that he speaks comes from Jesus. Paul is only pulling down, he's, he, he is taking every idea that he gives, he, he gives to the church, he gives to us, is really just taking, is taken from Jesus. So he says, you ought to submit to one another because Jesus did. And so we wind back, we see that Jesus in the previous years had walked the earth and he'd commanded his disciples, he commands us, that great command, that one command, If you're going to summarise all commands, he says, love God and love one another as you what? As you what? Love yourself. Love one another as you love yourself. There is a deference. There is a submission at the heart of the golden rule of the command that Jesus gives to every one of us. But Jesus doesn't just proclaim it. He lives it. He shows us what it means to live with radical submission. You know, the God of the universe steps down from heaven and surrenders and humbles himself and walks the dusty streets of Judea and spends time not with the important and the rich and the the high flyers, but with the broken, the marginalized and the poor. He surrenders and and, and lowers himself and humbles himself down to that level. And we read this profound uh, moment in the upper room, in a room a little bit like this, just before he's betrayed. And you know the story, right? The disciples come in and there is Jesus on his knees washing their feet. And they're confused by this. And Peter, Peter confronts him on it. 
But we, we read this in the Gospel of John that Jesus summarizes his actions this way. He says, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus says, go and do as I have done. I have humbled myself. I have submitted myself. And ultimately, we know the story of Jesus. He surrendered himself for us. Jesus shows us what mutual submission looks like. The one who didn't need to goes ahead and surrenders his life for us and then he says, you will be blessed if you do them. Go and do likewise. People, this is a vision for us as we relate to one another. Jesus says to each one of us, doesn't matter what your relational status is, submit yourselves to one another. Surrender your life to one another. That is countercultural. That is a picture of a radical community of faith. That is the invitation that every one of us are invited into, to submit to one another, to the person you're sitting next to, the person you're sitting in front of, behind of, you are called to mutually submit. That is a big call. And Paul here in Ephesians chapter five starts his, his instructions on marriage by making an overarching statement, again, claiming the, the words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus out of reverence for Christ. He says, whatever I'm gonna say next is pulling down on a universal principle that covers all of us. We are all called to mutually submit. It's a universal principle, but it must also, therefore, sit at the heart of marriage. We must carry this ethic of mutual submission into the relationship of marriage. As I sit down with married couples, as they begin to plan their wedding, the, the, the one thing that I want them to know is this. If you are humble, if you are teachable, if you are willing to surrender your life, you will make this marriage work. But if you are hard-hearted, if you are not willing to submit, if you are not humble, it will be a very hard road for you. And Paul, taking this great ethic, applies this to the heart of marriage. And there are implications for marriage, big implications. Why? Because marriage has deep commitments. It has high expectations and therefore it has great challenges. Now, marriage comes with a great, deep and binding commitment. We know this because there's, there's an exclusive covenant at play that requires fidelity. It's a shared life together and it is forever. You know, I stand in front of two couples and I've done it many, many times and they will, you know, with you know, starry eyes, kind of really no idea what is gonna happen to them over the coming years. They say these vows. They say, I so-and-so take you so-and-so. Not literally so-and-so, I don't know any so-and-sos. To be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. 
They are big words. They are significant, profound, deep commitments. They are weighty. They're they're powerful. And Jesus understands the power of this. I mean, he brings marriage up. He sets marriage on a higher level. He affirms the weight of these covenantal vows. There's a, there's a profound conversation that goes on. We read it in Matthew chapter 19. And, and, and the Pharisees are, are having a conversation with Jesus about divorce. And uh, they're wanting to trap Jesus and they wanna, they're trying to skewer him. They've got this question. And essentially, it's how can one become divorced? Now, in that culture, a man... All he needed to do was say to his wife, I divorced you three times, and then they would be divorced. I mean, it was a, I'll unpack a little bit more the culture in a moment, but, it, but that was how it worked. I mean, women were really pushed down. They had no say in the matter. And the Pharisees are wanting to get clarification on this, and Jesus comes back and says, oh, you totally miss it. He says this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8 following. He says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Now, I realize that there are a whole bunch of loaded words in here, and I'm not going to unpack all of that now. My point is this, that Jesus says marriage is not just about saying, I divorce you three times. That actually marriage is far more weighty to the point where the disciples go, well, if that's the rule, if that's what marriage is, if that's what the covenant of marriage is, we're out. We're not going to get married. We're not going to do it because it's hard. Jesus raises the temperature when it comes to marriage. And that has moved its way to today where marriage in, in, in our faith is held at high, a high esteem or the covenant is held high. See, there are deep commitments when it comes to marriage. Secondly, there are high expectations that come with that. Like if it's for, you know, if it's for life, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death to us part, man, they are high they're high commitments. And so if we enter into marriage, then we've got, we've got some expectations. Now, every person who steps in has an expectation about marriage. There's more at stake. And our expectations are shaped by our experiences. That's in anything, right? Look, our expectations are, create, are shaped by ex- experiences. You know, we've got an ex- experiences in culture you know, we've got a vision that's portrayed through some of those shows I said before, Netflix or movies or whatever, that shape our vision of what marriage should look like. But more deeply and more fundamental, our family shapes our vision of marriage. How we grew up, how our own parents lived, what we saw in our home shapes our vision of marriage in profound ways. In fact, it's our own, only really vision of marriage when we're young. And so when, when we grow up, we go, well, that's what marriage should be. That's what marriage should look like. When we do marriage counselling, one, one of the main things, one of the big things we, we, we want to talk through with couples is your family of origin because it forms us and it shapes us and it shapes our expectations in significant and profound ways. 
And so we come into marriage with, again, knowing it's such so, so significant, we come with our hopes and our dreams in our hearts and very quickly they turn into expectations, whether we can explain them or not. We come with expectations into a marriage and those expectations uh, may be varied. Expectations about who's going to do what in the marriage, who's going to do the chores, you know, what kind of house we're going to live live in (laughs) or destroy or renovate, what it's going to look like. Megan and I had some pretty robust conversations about where the couch was going to go and if anyone knows me and knows how passionate I am about seats, that makes sense. You know, what kind of car we're going to drive and who's going to drive it. Kids. If we're going to have kids, and how many kids we're going to have, we have expectations about what and how we're going to parent. You know, we've got expectations around romance and intimacy and how that's all going to work. We have expectations around finance and money, and we have expectations, or if I can get it out, about how often we're going to communicate, how often we're going to sit on the couch and talk. And how we're going to do conflict or whether we're going to do conflict. There are all these expectations that are loaded, connected to our hopes and dreams. Whether we understand them, whether we can see them or not, we all carry these expectations. And what ends up happening is that over time, maybe not immediately, we load them on our spouse. And we say, I've made a huge commitment. And I'm going to put it on you to help me fulfill. I want you to fulfill my expectations. Let me give you a couple of examples from our own marriage. I remember when early in our marriage, Megan's already worried. I remember when we, uh, when we got married, early in our marriage, uh, I was a pastor in a church and I just started inviting people over for lunch after church. And I'd seen it in my family. That's what we did. You know, after church, you just invite people over for lunch. But I didn't bother telling Megan this because that's where expectations are often not explained, right? They're just just in us. And so I'd be inviting people over for lunch. And obviously, Megan was the one loaded with the hospitality and sorting all that. After a while, Megan just said, can you stop doing this? This is ridiculous. I'm exhausted. You don't even prep, prep, you know, prepare me. And I was going, sweetheart, we just, we just wanted to be hospitable. You know, we're just going with the flow. Just invite people over. This is what you do as a pastor and a pastor's wife. And it was horrific. But they were the expect- expectations I had on Megan. I remember Megan had expectations that every, every night we'd come home after work and we'd just sit on the couch and talk every night for at least an hour because that's what happened when we were dating. But, but dating and marriage are very different. <laughs> when you're dating, you're on your best behaviour. <laughs> when you're married, it's just different. And, and also, and also... When you're dating, we weren't living together, so I didn't see Megan all the time. And so when, when we, all of a sudden, we're living together, seeing each other, I mean, I was getting my field three out of three of the days I was seeing Megan. You know, four days, I just need my own time. I'm an introvert. <laughs> Megan is an extrovert. 
But these are all the expectations that we carry. Explained or not, and what we do is we load these expectations on our spouse. And thirdly, as a result of that, unfulfilled expectations leads to disappointment and pain. And it leads to conflict and challenge. And when things get hard, there is a few things that we do in relationship as a response. Firstly, we check out. We check out. Now, at its worst, we divorce, but, but, but we also emotionally check out. We actually withdraw ourselves. We withdraw and we, we move ourselves away. If we don't check out, we seek to control or change people. We seek to try to change our spouse through manipulation, through nagging, through emotion, emotive language. And what happens is there's always a winner and a loser in this kind of battle. And here's the truth of it. If there's a winner, then there's a loser. And if there's a loser, then marriage loses. If you win, you lose. If you win, you lose. Or thirdly, we collapse into the other. We check out, we seek to control, or we collapse. We give in, we run over, and, and all that does is it just says, oh, my identity is not in Christ, I don't have an identity in him, my identity is located and wrapped in my spouse, and that is not good for anyone. You've got nothing to bring to the relationship. Now, we live in a culture of self-actualization. We live in a culture where we place huge expectations on others. And what happens is when we live with these expectations in our marriage, marriage becomes transactional. It becomes about what I can get rather than what I can give. Theologian Stanley Howard says it this way, he says, destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. The reality is, is when we find ourselves in marital relationship, we find ourselves with a stranger. And the opposite, so to the opposite, to oppose this self-fulfillment ethic, whatever that looks like, again, I say this to all of us, whatever your relationship status the, self, the, the antithesis to the self-fulfillment ethic is to submit and to sacrifice the self. The foundation for, a health, for healthy relationships, whatever they are, is mutual submission. And the foundation for a healthy marriage, therefore, is also mutual submission. And so Paul then, saying all of this, can then move on to talk about the specifics of marriage. Again, someone who was single. He says this in verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, he also, so also wives should submit to their husbands 
in everything. That's a little controversial. I don't know if you feel that, you read that, if you just preach that to the city of Brisbane and it's kind of like, oh, that, that, oh, that's, that's controversial. I'm not sure about that. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. That's controversial. You know, when Paul wrote that in the context of, of uh, first century Rome, that was not controversial. In fact, that was expected. See, women were seen in that time to, to be subjugated to their husbands. They were, they were seen as legal property to their husbands. The, the, the Greek idea was patria potestas, this idea that women and children were subject, or actually they were owned by their husbands. So when Paul says in that context, in that culture, women submit to your husbands in everything you do, the men are listening and going, yeah, sure. There's, there's nothing new about that. The women are hearing that and going, yeah, sure, there's nothing new about that. And in fact, as Paul writes, he, he's pulling down, he, again, pulling down from the ethic. If you read it in the Greek, Paul is saying, actually the words say, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves, is not even there. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Remember, Paul said, submit, everyone submit out of reverence for Christ. Wives, do that to your husbands. Submit to your husbands. There's a flow down effect that Paul is, is pulling on here. There is no change to the ethic from verse 21 to 22. Paul is just pulling down from the overarching ethic and saying, wives, this applies to you. And in that context, in that culture, they're hearing that and going, well, there's nothing new. There's nothing controversial about that. It's controversial for us today because we live in a culture that is self-actualized where everything is about us. I'm not saying it's just about women, I just think generally our tuning is, well, it's all about me. The whole idea of submission, mutual submission, is antithetical to our culture today. This is where it gets really controversial for Paul. If that's not controversial, the next part is, because Paul then turns his guns towards men. And he says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so there's a flow on effect. Remember Paul is, that verse 21 is the ethic. We mutually submit to one another. Wives, mutually submit to your husbands. Therefore, if it's mutual submission, men, you must also mutually submit to your wives, it's implicit in the passage. This, this is the first thing that's, that's challenging and confronting to men. As men hear verse 21, they realize that they are also invited and must submit themselves to their wives in mutual sub submission. This is scandalous in this time. 
In that time, remembering everything that we understand, that's scandalous. Men, submit, no way. Paul is aiming his guns. He is challenging men. And then he goes even further. I mean, the weight of the passage shows, you know, there's a couple of verses for the women and then there's a whole bunch of verses for the men. He says, men, you are to love your wife like you love yourself. And he says, you are to love like Christ, love the church. And they're hearing that and going, well, what happened to Jesus? Oh yeah, that's right. He was killed for the church. He died for the church. Now, in a context where marriage was about transaction, in a context where men uh, had women as property, where romance and love and affection was not really part of marriage, this is a radical concept that men were to lay down their own preferences and desires, or at the very least, love in the same way was deeply challenging. Paul is saying, men, you are to love in the same way that Christ loved the church. You are to lay down your own life, your own preferences, your own desires. You are to esteem and love your spouse in the way in which you love yourself. This is radically good news for women. We read this and we go, how offensive, how offensive to women. No, 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 no. This is scandalous for Rome. And the reason that we have the ethic today in which there is equality for all, there is value for all in our secular society is because of the Christian ethic. The reason that women are esteemed today, the reason that we even read verse 23 and feel some kind of awkwardness and offense is because of Christianity. It's because of Jesus. It's because the gospel says to all of us, every one of us, that we are created with equal dignity, equal value, equal worth, even within the context of marriage. That is good news. It's good news for all of us. A healthy marriage is a life, is a marriage of mutual submission. Paul says it. And so we're invited into a life of submission. Paul says a life of submission will lead to a life of love. No matter your story, no matter your journey, no matter your relationship status. But we know that submission is hard work. It's hard work to lay down our expectations. It's hard to, to put them down and go, I'm not gonna impose them on the other. It's hard work. It means sacrifice, surrender. But when we do, it leads to life and it leads to love. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realising that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that, saying that thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time.
C.S. Lewis says that to life and to find life, you must die. That is a kingdom ethic for all of us. For all of us. Our expectations, our hopes and our dreams, whatever they are, in whatever context they are, must die. Because that is the way to life. That is the way to love. A life of service, sacrifice and submission leads to a deeper, richer kind of love. And so marriage should be a submission competition. A submission competition where we are looking to put the other first, where we are fighting to come last. And the clue is found in verse 33. Paul says, however, there's, there's something that we can find here that we can apply. However, Paul writes, each one of you must also must love his wife. This is to the men as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Now that too just sounds a little bit like, oh my goodness, Paul's telling one person to do one thing, another to another. No, remember, this all sits under the covering of mutual submission. It sits under the covering of love. That, does that mean that, that men are not to respect their wives? No, because respect is part of love. Does that mean that, that women are not to love their husbands? Well, no, because everything sits under mutual submission. But what Paul is doing, I think, is highlighting some of our fundamental needs as men and women. Men, you are to surrender your desires. Men, you are to love your wife as you love yourself. You are to love through action. You love your wife and your kids as much as you love that game on the TV. You are to love your wife without any demands in return. You're to be present. Put aside that inclination to withdraw and choose to love in the way in which your wife would like to be loved. Be willing to sit and listen. Be willing to talk. I'm preaching that to myself. Men, learn to communicate in a way that loves your wife. Men, study your wife. Study what she loves because how are you to love her unless you know what she loves? You are to love your wife as you love yourself. That's what Paul says. And Paul says to women, respect your husbands. There's something about men, I don't know, this is me, where we just, we wanna know, are we good enough? I find that in us, we, we wanna know, am I up to it? Do I have what it takes? It might just be me, but I talk to many men who are like that. And, and I'm a verbal affirmation kind of guy. I need to be told I'm doing okay. Wives, bless your husbands by encouraging them, giving them respect, blessing them. And together as, again, as I said, under mutual submission, you will grow as you submit to one another and love one another. So how do we grow in mutual submission? Well, it takes intentionality, it takes work, it takes effort, it requires choice. Because if not, it won't happen. So what's the plan? This is where I'm landing. And PJ, you can probably come up now just to give everyone a bit of hope that I am going to land. <laughs> what's the plan? I, I remember I told a story. Um, 
I've shared this story before about a moment in, in our marriage. It was a few years ago. I'd, I was working at Gateway. I was over at McKenzie, and I was doing a whole stack of jobs. And I was, you know, I was, I was trying to do a great job. I was trying to succeed. I was trying to do well. I was trying to please everybody, and I was flogging myself. I was just so busy. I remember I was down in Melbourne, and um, and uh, for a, for a, for a leadership training event. And uh, before it started, Megan came down for the weekend, and we had what I was really looking forward to—a wonderful weekend with Megan. And it turned out to be a horrific weekend, but a vital weekend, an important weekend. As Megan began just to unpack and share some of her frustrations about how obsessed I was with work, how absent I was from the home, how absent I was from the kids, how absent I was from her how my priorities were messed up. You see, I I had a whole bunch of hopes and dreams that led to expectations about what marriage looked like. And I was living them out. And I was saying, Megan, you you, you carry this. This is is how how life is going to work. I, I, I did not have mutual submission at my heart. And Megan got to a point where she said, I can't do it anymore. And I remember it. Megan probably remembers it a little different to me, but, but, but I, I, uh, I thought, man, our marriage is on the cliff. I'm standing on the cliff right now. Something has got to change. I'm so grateful that Megan had the courage to actually say, Andrew, you need to hear my hopes and dreams and expectations. And I was so grateful that, that uh, I had time then to unpack with a retired pastor. I said, man, this is just what's happened. Can you help me? I sought help. I didn't bottle it up. I went to someone and said, can you, can you just help me? I submitted myself to somebody else. And they said, Andrew, you need to come up with a plan. Things need to change. You need to deal with those wrong expectations. You need to sort out things anew and afresh. It was a deeply painful time for me. Why? Because I was being forced to submit. I was being forced to say, I can't, I shouldn't, I'm not. I'm handing it over, I'm sacrificing, I'm dying. But out of that season, that time, I came back and over the coming months, we actually sat down and we created a plan about how things were gonna change. And this is the encouragement for all of us today, is that I want you to walk out, it's very practical. No matter your story, no matter your journey, come, come walk away and make a plan. For us, we, we sat down and we, we came up with a, a plan of how life was going to work, some rules. I had some rules. Megan made some rules about how often I was going to be out at night. And, and now every, and, and the way that we do that is every, now we've got a bunch of rules. You may have other plans. And I'm not saying that you need to do this. This is just some of the things that we do to help ourselves mutually submit. I'm just going to share them with you and you, you can take them or leave them. Every Sunday night, Megan and I look at our calendar for the next two weeks and I submit my calendar to her. Say, this is yours and she submits it to mine and we talk about it and together we work it together, bringing our hopes, dreams and expectations to the table and saying, let's talk it out. Let's work it out. We have a a weekly date Every Friday morning, we know that we're gonna have time to process and talk and connect. It's time, particularly for Megan, to to bring things, but for both of us, again, to talk about our hopes, dreams, and expectations. You know, we have agreed rhythms around romantic intimacy. We We actually have it planned. It's such a blessing to know that there are those systems and processes in place. We have an annual marital checkup 
So every year we go see a counsellor. There may not be too much going on in our life, but we know that we need other people to speak into our life. So every year it's booked in, we go and see someone. And then out of that, often then we need to go and see other people a little bit more individually, particularly me. (laughs) And we pray daily. That's not always easy. That's aspirational. We don't always get it. But here's the thing. There's something about praying. (laughs) When you pray together every day and we pray at night, It's very hard to hold a grudge. It's very hard to hold things against others when you are getting before the king of the universe who forgave you for all your sins and hold a grudge against your spouse. Prayer is the beautiful posture of mutual submission, saying, we submit to you, Father. You are the king. You are Lord. There are other things that we do, but they're just some of the things that work for us. What it does is it creates regular opportunities for us to talk about our expectations, our hopes and our dreams so that they don't get loaded on one another and together we can work them out. If there's one thing I'd encourage you to do if you're a married couple here, as part of your plan is this week or over the next couple of weeks, find a time to sit down And again, or for the first time, begin to talk about your hopes and your dreams and your expectations. Maybe you've never done it. You know, some of you blokes might be going, I don't don't have any expectations. Life is good, you know, it's it's all good. No, 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 you do. You just haven't learned how to explain it. They're there. And as you sit down as a couple, don't talk. If you're hearing and you're listening, just listen. And then together begin to pray and think about how you can together work together as a team because a healthy marriage, you need to hear this, a healthy marriage never turns in on itself. Like anything that's healthy, it grows and it moves outwards. It flourishes outwards. The fruit of a healthy marriage blesses Obviously kids, but it blesses others as well. I'd say this to every married couple, I'd say this particularly to young people, do not get consumed with yourself and your marriage. It isn't healthy. Think about the ways in which you can flourish and grow and bless others. And people who are married, bless those who are single for whatever reason. We should be looking out and inviting people of all types in. Blessing people of all, we are a community. Marriage is not the ultimate We need to understand this. Marriage is not the ultimate. And Jesus gives a picture, and I'm gonna be unpacking this a little bit tonight for those of us uh, in our evening congregation a bit more, but Jesus says the ultimate is the kingdom of heaven. The ultimate is the kingdom of heaven. And we can walk a life in marriage or singleness with a vision of who God is. Let us be a people both married and and single and everything in between and be a community that mirrors and lives the kingdom of God. Can we do that? Let's be that. A flourishing marriage always looks outwards and blesses the other and serves one another. For all of us here today, let's grab hold of what Paul has said, the foundation of a healthy relationship is mutual submission. 
There is a real practical way of, uh, of working this through. If you're married, you think through ways in which you can practically work and prioritise. I realise, I, I want to name this. I know for people who are single and for all the reasons that I listed before that sitting here today may feel a little bit like going to the dentist. I, I understand that. It's, 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 it's oh, do I have to sit through this? I, I want to pause and I want to acknowledge that. And as I said, we need to be a community that cheers and encourages and loves every person, no matter their story, no matter their journey. Maybe for you, it's repositioning your priorities and your plan in this season of life. If it's preparation for marriage or if it's the, the other end of marriage, whatever it is for you, bring it before God and say, God, what are you saying to me in this season? What are you calling me to in this season? What's the vision that you have for me? And even if it's just writing down a vision, God, this is what you're saying to me. Let's be practical, take this away and before God, just say, God, what are you calling us to do? Let's get practical. Let's make some plans and some steps as we move forward. I wonder whether we can stand together. And we're gonna sing one final song, Lord, I need you and we all need Jesus we all need Him to step into our life because He's the one that enables us to love well. He's the one that enables us to submit well. He's the one that enables us to care radically, to sacrifice and surrender in new ways. And we're gonna sing. And, and here's what I invite you to do. If you would just love, it's, this is more about not necessarily receiving prayer, but just a statement of saying, God, afresh and anew, I'm dedicating my life to you, whether that's my marital life or whatever that is. God, I, I wanna be intentional in this next season. I wanna surrender my hopes and dreams. God, will you take my dreams and I give them back to you? I surrender them to you. I just invite you just to come and, and step forward and just say, yeah, that's me. I afresh am surrendering to you. And maybe if that's a couple, you wanna come out together and say, Lord, this is a statement for us again. This is a new leaf or whatever that looks like for you. Come forward. My expectations, Lord, I'm giving to you. I'm surrendering. So come on, let's sing. And, if, and as you do that, and then I'd love to pray for us all at the end. Come on, let's sing. Feel free to come forward as a statement. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.